Pastor Church family, good to see you. I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we ask God's blessings on the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, you promised to accomplish the purpose for which you send your word. So accomplish that purpose in our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Get things going tonight. I want to talk a little bit of pop culture, if that's okay. And uh, in pop culture, I do believe uh, that this lady, Whitney Houston, is one of the greatest singers of all time. Maybe you have some favorites. Uh, for me, it will be I Want to Dance with Somebody or I Will Always Love You, especially when she does those like runs in her voice really high. That's my favorite. And uh, while Whitney Houston was a brilliant artist, some might describe her life as less than brilliant, maybe even messy. Uh, maybe some uh, would contribute this to a relationship with Bobby Brown, who did not seem to be a good influence. Uh, but what we know about Whitney Houston is that she struggled with substance abuse. Substance abuse of many different kinds. In fact, that led to her demise in 2012, where, we sh where she was found deceased in the Beverly Hills Hotel. So that's been a few years. But I don't really want to talk about Whitney Houston tonight. I wanted to bring up who I think is a hero, someone we can learn from, and that is her mom named Sissy. Now, Sissy is pictured here, um, and Sissy is one who, after um, Whitney was dropped from the Oscars in 2000, confronted Whitney about her problems. She staged an intervention, actually went to get a court injunction. And Whitney recalls through an interview that's recorded here uh, what it was like and what Sissy did. Uh, she said, Whitney did, uh, one day my mother came to my house. She walked in with these sheriffs. She said, I'm, I'm not losing you to the world. I have a court injunction here. You're either going to do it my way or we're not just going to do this at all. We're both going to go on TV and you're going to retire. This is not worth it. Mother's love goes pretty far, doesn't it? Now, I wish I could tell you it, it, it worked. One of the things we learn about confronting that we'll talk about is we can't control what someone else does. And yet, wouldn't anyone agree with me that, that this is a loving thing to do? She risks her relationship with Whitney Houston. She risks uh, Whitney Houston's anger. She, she risks maybe being ostracized, not getting the money. I don't know all the things that would have gone into her mind, but she's putting herself out there knowing that her daughter was on a bad track. So we're in this series called What Does Love Look Like? And this type of love is actually mirrored in the Bible. In fact, the Bible describes a story of a man who as far as we know, he was not addicted to any substance, but he was living in a sin. Uh, he was living with an unconfessed sin of murder. And some Bible commentators even say that at this point, he probably was not a believer. He had lost the faith. That's how far he had gone. Now, does anyone know who I'm talking about living in sin and unconfessed murder? King David. David, the one who, out of all the sons of Jesse, was chosen. David, the one who fought Goliath, believing in the power of God. David, the one after God's own heart. This is David, who was again in need of someone to confront him. And that need was met in Nathan. Nathan the prophet was sent by God. God informed Nathan over all that, that David had done. The murder, the adultery. And Nathan has a brilliant way of confronting. He sets up a story. 
uh, telling David this story about a rich man with many sheep and a poor man with one sheep. And that rich man was David with, with many choices for romance. And not that that was good. Polygamy was not a good thing. You should read the rest of David's story. Um, and then the one man who, Uriah, had that one sheep that he loved with all his heart. David stole the one, killed Uriah. And Nathan confronted David with these four years. His whole world come crashing down after David heard this story. You are that man. Now from there, David had a turnaround. By the grace of God, we still know him as a man after God's own heart. By the grace of God, he went on to do some great things for the Lord. He was inspired to build what we know as Solomon's temple. He learned from his mistake. In fact, uh, he has a psalm written about this account, a psalm that's good for us to consider tonight. It's Psalm 51. It's a psalm of repentance. And and here are a few words uh, based on what David was feeling after confronted, but then being restored. He he said, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed, because that's what it feels like when, when you're living in impenitent sin. You're just continuing. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Rather, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Some beautiful words. The joy of salvation. Grant me your spirit. Well, as we consider... God's word tonight on this Ash Wednesday, and again, good to see you. I want to tell you, God has called you to be Nathan. God has called you to be Sissy Houston. That if you truly love someone, love is going to be more than just lip service. Love is going to show itself in action, and sometimes that action, done out of love, is confronting someone who is in danger. That's what we consider in the word of God. So I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to have rules of how to get this confrontation right. Uh, this is also where the church gets the principle of excommunication, by the way. Um, it's a heavy word. It's, it's a word that if you would ever go that far and excommunicate, which would be put someone outside, um, you would do that out of love, saying you're in a dangerous spot. We'll talk more about that tonight. Don't worry. Um, but turn to m- with me to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, the, the screen or in your worship folder. It says, If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two of the others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Um, Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. This talking about sins and, and forgiveness. So if someone is impenitent and you bind them, that's saying you're not forgiven because you're not repentant. Whatever you loose on earth, forgive, will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if, you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, if there was a reason to pray together more often, that would be it right? About forgiveness and anything else. For wherever two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And this is the word that we can consider. And um, as we continue, you can turn to the next person and tell them, love confronts. Love confronts.
Have you ever met a, a one-upper? Do you even know what I mean by a one-upper? A one-upper would, would be like this. It's like if I went to a one-upper and said, hey, I just PR'd on a 5K, which means I had a personal record, and I averaged nine minutes a mile, right? That one-upper would say, oh, really? You know, just yesterday that I averaged seven-minute miles, right? A one-upper, it's like kids, if you would tell uh, a classmate, hey, our family is going to a hotel with a pool over spring break. Awesome. That classmate would respond, oh, really? Our family is going to the ocean in Ibiza, Spain. So, just, just say it, right? One-uppers, they're hard to tolerate, and they're, they're kind of funny because they're obnoxious. Uh, One-upper is illustrated by this cartoon, I win. Uh, One-upper, and I don't recommend everything SNL, um, but one-upper was uh, a Penelope character in SNL. Um, she, she was always better, so the world's greatest chef, and this is bad English, world's greatest est chef, so, right? One-uppers. The reason I, I go here tonight is because what we're talking about, motivation will matter almost more than what you actually do. When it comes to confronting, if your motivation is to be a one-upper, if your goal is to somehow prop yourself up by putting others down, if your goal is to kind of show that you are holier than someone else, we call it holier than thou, that then God would say, no, 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 that, that isn't the motivation at all. In fact, you might do more damage than you would do good. And we learn this based on another scripture that Jesus shared with us. It's a scripture that's very popular in our society today. They love to use it for everything, but it actually has a context. It's that, 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 that scripture about don't judge. Um, that, that scripture says here in, in Matthew, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now let's clarify about the whole do not judge because this is where most people get it. You ever heard that do not judge? It is clearly in the context talking about confrontation, isn't it? It's clearly saying when you go about this and you're going to address someone else's problem, that's the context of which not to judge. But don't you know that it is wise to judge other Christians if we're trying to lead them into a path of help? But what he's clearly setting up, and he's a master illustrator, is that, uh, well, here's my plank. If this is sticking out of my eye, I would probably not go up to Nadia and say, hey, help me with your eyelash. Uh, I, I, can, I can give you a lot of help, Right? This would, this would be a, a problem, right, for me to come up to you, hey, Vincent, I really want to help you with your eye. What do you think? Right. So Jesus is kind of good with illustrations, isn't he? And he's basically saying, you know, if you think you're better, you've you got to remove this. You've got to, again, remember all the things, the plank that I removed, Jesus Christ removed, if you're ever going to get confrontation right. If you're ever going to have the spirit that I want from you. And so, what should the motivation be when we confront? The easy answer is love. I was reading a commentator who he said the nuanced love is compassion. Uh, the Bible commentator said it this way, compassion to the extent of even appearing to share the guilt. Basically, I'm not better than you, right? I'm a sinner. We're on the same level. Compassion to the extent of even appearing to cry for help. So again, uh, you, you share, you empathize with the situation, the plight they're in. Compassion to the extent of even appearing to be inexorable, which I don't use, but just means unstoppable. 
that you're not going to stop loving this person. Love will compel you to do what you can do for someone else, right? This is the motivation God wants for us. So to put it another way, the first takeaway, if you do not love this person, nor can speak out of humility, do not confront. It may do more damage than it does good. If you can't adamantly say, I love this person, it is best not maybe to judge. See, what we're talking about really is relationships with others. And any relationship with someone else is what I refer to as a dance. Now, I don't know if anyone ever took dance lessons. Anyone? There's the Fred Astaire place. I've been interested by it, but um, the only dance lessons I ever had was in gym class. So we we learned the the four-step, the foxtrot. Never learned the salsa or the swing, which is what I would have liked, but... But if you've taken dance, you know that there is a right step to this thing. You don't want to step on someone's toes, and the right step is dictated by whatever dance you're in. The reason I bring up this illustration is because in every relationship, we're, we're always asking, you know, what's the right move? What's the right move? Where do we go? What, what dance are we in? And I do believe that God gives us the steps. And the step in any relationship is just to ask a simple question, which is, what does love look like? That's your step. As you know the person, as they know you, then you continue to ask the step, at this time, what does love look like? At this time, what does love look like? At this time, what does love look like? And, and at certain times, it means with a child who is naughty, you know, love looks like punishment. All right? That, that's going to happen because you're on a bad road. There we go. At other times, when someone had a, a careless, impulsive comment, love looks like overlooking it. Saying, okay, you were impassioned. I get it. But what's very clear is that at certain times, love will also confront. Now, that's the spirit. We've gained the spirit of confrontation. Now we maybe ask the question, who are we to confront? And to talk about this a little bit, um, I just want to tell you as a pastor, it's interesting how people's language changes after they find out that I'm a pastor. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I'll go to the gym and, and gym guys rough and tumble, right? And, and they'll be throwing out, you know, sailor terminology. It's, 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 it's salty, some would say. And, um, and it's funny, when, when I throw the pastor bomb out there, which feels like a bomb many times, um, they, they, they will clean it up. They, they sometimes even apologize, right? Um, but what's really interesting is that although they do that, and maybe some of that's good, I don't take it upon myself to be the language police. I, I don't take it upon myself to say, well, you, you better, you know, apologize shape up, ship out, you know, that like I cannot believe, right? And if I would do this, it'd be ridiculous. If I went to the gym and I just tried to be language police to everyone who is using salty language, um, I, I would not be very popular, right? Um, I don't see it as my role. Now, does this mean that I promote foul language? Well, no, I don't. I don't promote foul language. Um, but the reason I don't do it is because I don't have a relationship with these people. They don't know me from Adam. And even more importantly than my lack of relationship is I don't know if they have a relationship with Jesus, which is even more important. Because here's a principle that I believe. Andy Stanley's a brilliant guy, and, and he said this. He said that rules without a relationship will lead to rebellion. If I'm just coming with all my Christian rules and say salty language need not apply, th they, they might say, I don't have a relationship with you or Jesus. Get out of here right? Rules without a relationship will lead to rebellion. 
So who are we to confront then? Well, I, I think Scripture dictates this. As you look at verse 15, um, as it just starts out, it says, if you're who or who has a sin. What does it say? Brother or sister. Now, is that not a close relationship? Brother or sister. And this could be a familial brother or sister. Um, in context, it's probably a, uh, a Christian who we call brother and sister, um, right? Um, but, but here's a principle then, that proximity dictates confrontational comfortability. In other words, the nearness I have to someone is how comfortable I should be or should not be in confronting them. Why do I confront, not confront every salty language person? Because I don't have a relationship. I'm not near them. Whereas, in a near relationship, I might do a lot of confronting. In a near relationship, that might even lead to, to fine-tuning. In fact, my wife and I were, were reading a, a marriage book right now. Uh, pretty good, pretty good. And we came to one chapter that said, the purpose of marriage is not for happiness, which you know, challenged us a little bit. Because you know, I do think that in marriage you want happiness, but it's not the main purpose. Rather, they said one of the main purposes of a marriage is to change each other. I was confronted a little bit by that too because I can't change anyone else, but I think I got what they're saying. Because they were playing off of iron sharpening iron, right? And what I, what I came to kind of consider is that because of the nearness of that relationship, if anyone can expose a blind spot, if anyone can really help me with fine-tuning on one thing or another, is it not the spouse that you walk with? And because of that proximity, shouldn't you, if you're going to confront anyone, have the right to confront that person? Out of love, trying to help. See, this proximity thing is a big deal. If we don't get this right, we give off the wrong impression to those who don't follow Jesus. We give off the impression that really we just exist to, to create morality among other people, to, to clean things up, where only the Savior can lead to true change. But if you want to love, you will love those who are near to you by confronting them. All right. Well, if it's appropriate in marriage, I do believe it's also appropriate in the church. Um, as I was saying, brother and sister, I do believe this is a Christian relationship. So one of the main blessings that a Christian uh, church has is its, it's, it's accountability. And accountability can be very, very helpful. Sometimes accountability can help a person out of an addiction, an addiction sin. Uh, sometimes accountability uh, can, can call someone out to a, a blind spot that maybe they had in their life that, that now uh, is exposed and, and something they can work on. Again, all done out of love. In fact, James reminded us how helpful it can be. He says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And, and, and church family, what if this was us? What if we existed with this principle so well that someone who was on a bad track that led away from God was turned around just because we knew how to love right. That'd be worth it, right? In fact, to the church, God has given different tools. At the very end, if they didn't listen to a brother or they didn't listen to two and it brought to the church, uh, the, the church had this principle, um, you know, that they were to, actually, let me turn to the word, um, verse 17, it says, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, what does that mean? It just means that you might exact some discipline. 
You might say, again, you're not fit for leadership, you're not fit for membership, you're still welcome here, but there are consequences because you're on a dangerous path. What we see from this is that discipline is extension of love. And I know there are parents in the room, and parents understand this. Why do you take a, a cell phone away from a teenager? Not to make their life hard? Well, because they might be on a bad path, and this is the only way we're getting through to them. Take away that thing. Exact some discipline. But the reality is that this is really, really easy to talk about and really, really, really hard to do. In fact, how many of us um, always have the right spirit about us? Uh, just removed of all pride. Like, all my pride is gone, so the way I interact with you is just filled with no pride at all. H how many of us would be open to confrontation without giving an excuse, without saying, without excusing, you know, um, but you don't know, you don't understand, right? Want to defend ourselves. How many of us have had the boldness of wanting to confront, or we just say, well, it'll work itself out, or I got all these excuses why not to, right? And here again, this Ash Wednesday, we recognize we need a Savior. Here again, we recognize, man, we have fallen so short of the mark God set for us when it comes to what love lo looks like. And because of this, he should have nothing to do with us. But I love our Savior. And I love Ash Wednesday. I love Lent. And why do I love Lent? Because there's this beautiful symmetry of both confrontation and restoration. See, during this time, when we consider the passion of Jesus Christ, we are confronted like nothing else. We are confronted with how ugly, how dire our sin really is. And the full weight of it. We are confronted by the cross and the crown of thorns, by the nails, by everything that just screams at us, this should have been yours. This was yours because of your sin. And while it confronts us and it doesn't let us escape, it at the same time restores us. Because the same crown of thorns, the same nails, the same cross also speak of the price that has been paid once and for all so that sinners who are hopeless without Jesus are set free. So that sinners who need peace have found it tonight and always. So that sinners who have the need for daily repentance can go and know there's an exhaustible, inexhaustible supply of forgiveness won by Jesus Christ. Yes, I love Ash Wednesday. I love Lent. Because here we are confronted and restored at the very same time from a God who loves us enough to do that. But we need to learn a little bit more. If Jesus loved us so much as he confronted Pharisees, right, he was hard with them because they were hard-hearted. As he confronted a woman at the well, he was very soft there because she was soft-hearted. As he confronted Judas and wanted him to turn around, as he confronted Peter and said, you're going to deny, as he did that, how, how do we get better at doing this? Because, because that's what Jesus did. And how can we go forward? Well, I think something that can help us is what we will give to that person. You know, one principle of love is that love will always want the best for someone else. Isn't that true? In a loving relationship, have you ever wanted uh, something good for someone else? Uh, for example, I grew up in a household where my mom would say, I would give you the world if I could. 
It's a good phrase. It's one that I stole that I give to my kids right now, right? Good things come from mom. I'd give you the world if I could. And uh, right now, the world uh, for Bella can sometimes look like a lush bath bomb, right? Uh, right now, uh, love for Nadia is ice cream. Still is, right? And, uh, and that's just what love does. Love says, I know who you are. I want to give you just the best of the best. And so when we look at this idea of confrontation, there's something we can give to people if we get this right. There's something to be gained. For, for when it comes to it, one of the verses said, if your brother and sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And literally the Greek meant you gain something. And so my mind was stretching, okay, what do I gain? Well, rifts in relationships are all too common. There can be family rifts, there can be rifts at work, there can be rifts all over the place. We see them in society, too. And one of the things you might gain, if you get this, confrontation has the goal of gaining your relationship with them. Why do you do this? Because if you're honest with yourself, if this isn't cleared up, if peace isn't made, you're going to write them off and they might write you off. You're going to go that way. They're going to go that way. You're going to avoid each other even if you see each other at the grocery store because you didn't do what you needed to do out of love. Now, I'm not saying that the situation always goes to being the same. In fact, that's something about forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean the relationship is exactly the same. Trust will need to be rebuilt. But when you confront, when you say, this happened... It's a chance to regain that relationship, right? Well, it's not just that that relationship is important, but, but as Christians, there's something else more important. See, confrontation um, also has the goal of gaining their relationship with God. In fact, that's always what this is about. I told you before that it's good to confess your sins and hear from someone else you're forgiven. That's a very powerful thing and should be at the essence of this passage. The reason to confront is, again, to restore that person saying you have been forgiven. Now, when it comes to confrontation, there are certain things you cannot control. And unfortunately, we cannot control other people. We cannot control whether that word will be accepted or rejected. We will not control whether, again, they will uh, repent or, or be impenitent. But if it comes to us, look at what it says in Romans, and our part, if it is possible, because sometimes it's not possible. As far as it depends on you, exhaust all that you can do. Live at peace with everyone. And fight for their peace with God. Now, the church actually has some wonderful tools on how to do this. We're going to confess later the, the explanation of the ministry of the keys. And the church has keys. It, it was found in the verse 18 where it says, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So if you lock something, it'll be locked. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this was the idea that because Jesus died and paid for all sins, if someone is impenitent, we can warn them. You're not forgiven. In fact, you're in a dangerous spot because you don't care. And finally, your love for sin could lead you away from a love for the Savior. So we warn them by saying, watch out. But better, we have the powerful tool of unlocking and saying, on behalf of Jesus Christ, because he died, because he paid the price, your sins are forgiven to any and all who repent. It's a wonderful opportunity. 
And where might it lead? Well, the story of Nathan and David has a happy ending. In fact, uh, we see it culminate in these passages in 2 Samuel. It says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. What if we were the one to begin to use by God to speak a word of peace? You don't have to worry about death. No matter how far gone you are, no matter how long you've run down that road, because of Jesus Christ, you have the right to peace. This is what the church does. On Ash Wednesday, on every day, this is Christian community releasing sinners to be forgiven. May God convince you again to do this tough work, to maybe confront someone, maybe being willing to be confronted, to know what real repentance looks like. And may he finally lead that situation to a path of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.